It was one of those nights when my energy was depleted. I'd given it all I could during the day. From sunup to sundown, I was stuffing information in my mind and spitting it out. It was the middle of finals week, which meant trying to stay above water while memorizing terms, writing last big papers, and finishing the remaining small assignments. The amount of caffeine I had consumed up to that point in the week was enough to fuel the space shuttle. Now, with a couple of tests and assignments completed, on that particular day, I'd finally come to a stopping point, and I realized oh, I need to leave the library and go home and sleep, if I could. So I flung my book bag into the car and set off for my place near campus. And on the way back, something hit me. Now, it wasn't a deer, it wasn't another car. It was this insatiable feeling of craving and pain. I was hungry. I realized that my dinner was a Nature Valley granola bar and even more coffee. So what does a student do when hunger overcomes him on the road and it's 11 p.m. at night? That student goes to McDonald's to get breakfast. <laughs> yes, the all-day breakfast menu at McDonald's will go down in history as one of the corporation's greatest decisions ever made. So I pulled into the McDonald's near my house and lo and behold, everyone had the same idea. <laughs> the drive through line was at least 10 cars long, and it was moving about as fast as the lowest setting on the treadmill. But I could not fight this feeling anymore. So I nudged my car into the line and awaited my destiny at the drive through And finally, after an agonizing 10 minutes, it was my turn. And I pulled into the glow of that electric menu. And my eyes found the item of my desire. A sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles sandwich with the bun that is injected with maple syrup. Mm, this was my moment. But beneath the picture of the item of my desire was something that deflated my ecstasy. It was an unwelcome three-digit number in clear, legible print. 550. That's how many calories are in a sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddle sandwich. And I thought, okay, McDonald's, it's bad enough that I'm here, that I've gotten to the point where I'm at McDonald's, and now you want me to feel bad about it. The calorie indicator on the McDonald's menu told me, okay, I know you're here, but are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> in, that in that moment, my response was, thanks for your concern, McDonald's, but yes, I am sure I want to do this. <laughs> Give me my McGriddles. Well, this morning in the portion of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, we are considering today he begins to address them directly and makes it clear that he's concerned. He sees what they're about to do and he asks them, like the McDonald's calories indicator, are you sure you want to do this? Well, Paul's concern is far more serious than a sandwich, but still, it's a concern that the Galatians don't want to hear from him. 
It's a concern that they need to hear from him. So if you're not there yet, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. If you're using a red pew Bible like this, uh, in, the, in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 974. Galatians chapter 4. And find verse 8 when you get there. It'll be the smaller number after the big chapter number. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this is a great place to be. Uh, this book, we believe, we start here every week because we believe it's claimed that it is God's Word written. And that God still uses it today to reveal who he is, to reveal how he has acted to save his people, and he uses it to grow his people to become more like him in their characters. So the Bible is divided then into 66 books, 39 of which make up what's called the Old Testament, which tell how God related to his people before Christ you know, God's promise to save his people from their sin and their just continued inability to get themselves out of sin. And then they have 27 books, which are called the New Testament, which tell of the Son of God's coming to earth, how he saved his people by living, dying, and rising in their place, and how he established his church and what he's going to do in the future in return. So this is God's word, and today we're focusing on one portion of God's word found in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Galatians. So we're starting here in chapter 4, and we are reading verses 8 to 20. Galatians 4, 8 to 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have, may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. And it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Well, this passage makes the most sense when you know what comes before it. What Paul has been talking about, Paul is the one who wrote this letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, which we find today uh, in modern-day Turkey. So Paul came to this region of Galatia, and he spoke the gospel to them. And the gospel begins that we've put ourselves in a predicament. That on our own, before God, we are helpless and hopeless. Paul labels this as bondage. That we've given ourselves over to things that aren't God. 
loved other things, loved ourselves before loving him. And thus our whole lives, the way we live, are sinful and we can't see it. And we can't get ourselves out under it. But, Paul says again and again, like we noticed last week in chapter 4, verse 4, hope has emerged in the midst of this predicament. And that hope comes not from our initiative, it comes from God. That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, who lived the life we did not live, and yet died the death that we deserved. So this sacrifice of the sinless Son of God become human is the price paid. It's the price paid for our redemption to break us free from the bondage. So though we were previously helpless and hopeless, God has acted in his Son to give us And not just wishful thinking, a certain expectation that our sins are indeed forgiven. And we know that now, Paul has said, we know that Jesus has accomplished this because of the effect that the gospel has in our lives. It's transforming nature to give us new desires, no longer to follow what we used to follow, but a new desire to be near the Lord. That's brought by the Holy Spirit. So this is the gospel that Paul preaches and that Paul is defending now. He's defending it because this gospel in Galatia is coming under attack. See, there are these other teachers who are adding to this gospel and thereby undermining it, taking away its power. So the gospel says that Christ is who gives us the full status of freedom, forgiveness, and being adopted into God's family. And so because Christ alone has done this, all we do is receive him and his work by faith, by trusting him, leaning on him alone. These teachers in Galatia, they were telling these Christians that they needed to do something more, that they needed to do these outward acts of the family of God in order to belong fully to the family of God, in order to be fully accepted by God. In other words, what they were communicating is that Christ, though good, is not enough. Friends, if we need to add to Christ, then that means he is not our Savior. It means ultimately we are our Savior. So the entire letter of Galatians, Paul says that this is not what the gospel is. We do not add to what God has done for us in Christ. We receive what God has done for us in Christ. So in chapter 4, verses 8 to 20, we can say that the main point is this. Christ is enough now and forever. So don't turn back to trying to earn your salvation, to trying to earn your place with God. So we'll walk through verses 8 to 20 in two major sections. The first being a sober concern, verses 8 to 11. And the second section being an impassioned appeal. To begin first with a sober concern, verses 8 to 11. And uh, as we start here, let me ask you a question. 
Are you a good singer? I won't ask you to prove that to me right now. That's okay. Uh, well, some people are convinced that they are good singers. Uh, but when they open their mouths, it sounds something less than Celine Dion. It's actually kind of unpleasant. And what explains this? Well, most of the time, it's because they are tone deaf. They can't hear or recognize how certain notes are supposed to sound so they can't reproduce it themselves. Being tone deaf makes it really hard to sing. And by the way, just as a, a footnote here, um, if you know you're tone deaf, sing as loud as you can here. <laughs> Seriously. We would rather hear your joy and passion than, than someone um, who is a good singer and doesn't sing with joy and passion. But being tone deaf doesn't only make singing hard, it also makes reading hard. I mean, have you ever tried to carry a texting conversation? You know this. If you don't know the tone that the person is speaking with, you can misinterpret a lot of things. So it's just like reading the Bible. If you are tone deaf reading the Bible, it's going to make it hard to understand. So looking at this passage as a whole, particularly verses 8 to 11, we can just zoom in on this. What is Paul's tone? You look at certain phrases like, how can you? And I am afraid. His tone is one of concern and concern for other people. So friends, it's important to know that in order to understand this passage. I think also just to say this now in light of Paul's tone, this is a category for Christians to be concerned for other people. If being concerned for other people doesn't automatically mean you are judging them. No, it, at oftentimes it means if you're doing it honestly and lovingly that you are searching for what is best for them by being concerned with others. So here, this is Paul's tone of concern that they are heading down a dangerous path. And so he gives the reason for his concern in verses 8 to 11, and he does that by explaining their situation, who they were before God, who they were after God, and now what they are doing. So before God, Paul says in verse 8, the Galatians were enslaved to those by nature are not God's. So many of the Galatian Christians came from non-Jewish backgrounds. They were Gentiles. So that means they likely worshipped these Greco-Roman gods, these pagan idols. This is what they used to do. They were enslaved to this. But the question becomes, well, how can you be enslaved to things that aren't really there, that, that are supposed to be false gods that don't really exist? Well, Scripture clarifies that, yes, indeed, they don't exist that there is only one God, I am the Lord, and there is no other, God says repeatedly. But even though there are no other gods, Scripture also says, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, that demons can use these idols, that there are demonic powers behind these so-called gods. And this is what the Galatians previously gave themselves to. And Paul says they were previously enslaved by those things. This is who they were before God. And then we see that little word again. 
a little word that gives hope in a hopeless situation. But, but God did something. And at this point, if we just stayed here before God, well, we'd be temp- tempted to think that there's this large chasm between these first century Galatians and us modern day people. That, of course, we've advanced and we've left behind superstitious pagan religion. But what we noticed last week is that everyone gives themselves to something. It's impossible not to live for something. It's impossible not to worship. And anything that you give yourself to, anything that you live for, that is not God. That's an idol. Because an idol is anything that takes the rightful place of God. Oh, we haven't advanced out of this. What's more, it's not, not just idolatry is wrong, but it is, friends, it's foolish. Because anything that you make an ultimate thing that's not God will let you down. And it will crush you. And you weren't made to do that. This was before God. This was the Galatians' previous state. And that little word comes up again. But. But now, Paul says, the Galatians know God. And that word know here is used in the way that the Bible often uses it. Not just describing intellectual knowledge, that I am now aware of God. Now that word know means a personal, experiential love and intimate relationship. So here what Paul stresses here is that the Galatians have this type of relationship with God. And more importantly, he says, God chose to have that kind of relationship with them. Do you realize God didn't have to choose that? God didn't have to choose to have that kind of relationship with these pagan Galatians. So think about it for us. Think about what the Bible says. It's not that we have loved God. It's not that we were trying so, so hard and we were so eager to please the Lord that he said, all right, I give in. I'll finally love you guys. No. 1 John 4.10 says that it's not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sin. So God's choice to do that is not based on how hard we tried. It's based on his grace alone. That's meant to give us confidence. Well, that's a way better foundation than if we had to earn that love, that we had to earn that choice. Well, this is what God had done for them. And now what? How are they living now? Well, in the second part of verse 9, Paul says that they are turning back to the weak and worthless principles of the world. So what were these new teachers coming in and tempting the Galatians with? Were they bringing back their old pagan idols? Hey, guys, we found these in the trash. Maybe you should start worshiping them again. That's not what they were doing. They were bringing in the Old Testament law and saying, hey, uh, people have done this forever, and this is how people are part of the family of God. You've got to do certain things before you're in. It can't just be Jesus. you got to start looking like us, too. 
So they were tempted not with their old pagan religion. They were tempted with outward performance based on the Old Testament law. So what Paul's saying here then is stunning. He says what they're being tempted with now is weak and worthless. So that means that earning status with God through religious ritual, like he says in verse 10, observing holy days and seasons as prescribed in the Old Testament, that earning status with God through that is just as weak and worthless as turning back to their pagan idolatry. It's on the same level. It will get you to the same place. Martin Luther says that any effort to redeem ourselves, to earn our forgiveness, or to achieve family status with God, either through pagan idolatry or by using the law to set up our own righteousness, any effort that we rely on ourselves sets up ourself as our Savior, not Christ. And Paul is so stunned by this. Because this is exactly what Jesus saved them from. He saved them while they were hopeless, while they were helpless. And now they're thinking, no, we can do something. Jesus hasn't done everything. It's as if the Galatians had been freed from Egypt. And now the agitators want them to go back to Egypt and be slaves again. So Paul is not only stunned at the lack of logic with this, but he's fearful for them. As they turn back, this leads to their bondage, not freedom. They're turning back to relying on themselves, which show that they never grasped what Jesus has really done. So Paul sees this storm brewing, and he tells the Galatians to go away from it. So before we leave here, this this sober concern. And I ask you, where are you on this timeline? What stage are you in? Are you in the before God stage? Are you still giving yourself to something other than God? Friends, do you see how that controls you? When you live for something, you must meet the demands of that thing. And not just that it controls you, but that it will let you down. Not to, not to make you upset. But nothing besides God is able to hold the weight of being the ultimate central thing of importance. Nothing's able to hold that weight. So do you see the freedom then that God offers you? That despite all of us don't live the way we were meant and born to live... Don't give God the honor that he is due. Despite all that, God has made a way for you to come back to him, for you to have the freedom he intends his people to have. And he's paid for it with his own blood. Do you see that? And all we do is receive that by trusting in what Christ has done that we never could do. Live that perfect, sinless life that we didn't live and couldn't live and died the death we deserve. Friends, why wouldn't you do this? So if you think you're in that before God stage, 
don't leave here. Don't end this day without thinking about that, without talking to God about that, and I think without talking to someone else about that. Talk to me. Talk to your friends here. What stage are you in? This before God, this after God? Most of us here are in this after God stage. Most of us here are Christians. We have come to know God, or rather, God has come to know us. So today, realize the confidence-inducing, heart-warming, assurance-providing power of God's free grace. If God has chosen to love us, and he has accomplished our redemption, our salvation, if he's done it, then our status, our relationship with him, does not ultimately depend on our achievement. It does not ultimately depend on what other people think of us and how much others approve of us. Friends, if it did depend on that, what assurance could we have? If it depended on how well we are doing, on how, what, what others think of us, we should be anxious and we should worry and we should have no assurance of salvation. But it depends not on us, on Christ. That's what all of Galatians is about. So Christian, check your heart. You did not save yourself. The turning back to relying on yourself is putting back on the chains that Christ broke for you. And friends, turning back to relying on yourself and your religious and spiritual achievements, friends, that's a dangerous form of bondage. There are religious persons and religious groups who would tell you that you must do certain outward practices to achieve a status or achieve forgiveness. And that by relying on those practices, that's how you get close to God. And so the dangerous thing is when people rely on those outward works for their salvation, for their status, they're convinced they're near to God when in actuality they're far from him. So at least the non-religious person, the person who claims no interest in God, knows that he's far from God. But the religious person, the so-called religious person, who relies on just his works for his status with God, thinks he's near to God, but is actually far. You see how dangerous that is. So does this mean that Christians don't grow spiritually and that good works mean nothing? No. Absolutely not. Rather, it's good works are the outcome of our salvation. Good works are not the means of our salvation. They are not how we are saved. They are what salvation produces in us. So we know that we rely on Christ alone when we want to continue to rely on Christ alone and not ourselves. And that will mean a new stance against sin. That will mean a new stance against what is against Christ. And that will mean that we listen to the warnings when we are relying on ourselves instead of Christ. So this is a sober concern. In the next stage, we see an impassioned appeal. Verses 12 to 20. 
why do math teachers make you show your work? They just want their students' lives to be miserable. <laughs> That's what I was convinced of. I said, hey, I, if I'm going to get the answer right anyway, why do you need to see how I got it? Well, besides to make sure I didn't cheat, teachers require students to show their work in order to help them. I mean, think about it. If I hand in my homework or my tests with my math problems and I get the answer wrong, but I didn't show my work, what's the teacher supposed to do? How can she help me? But if I get the problem wrong and I show my work, then the teacher can see where I went wrong and show me what to do instead. So think of that. How, that's how Paul is organizing this section. So in verses 8 to 11, Paul warns the Galatians of where they are going wrong. In verses 12 to 20, he appeals to them to do something instead. And what does he appeal to them to do? Look at verse 12. His appeal, what they should do instead, instead of going back to relying on themselves, is to become like him. Well, that's pretty bold, Paul. Become like him. What does he mean? He says, become like me because I became like you. Paul, you're not really helping here. <laughs> what does he mean by saying that he became like them? Well, remember who the Galatians are. They are Gentiles who did not have the Old Testament law. So Paul became like Gentiles in that he no longer used the law to establish his own righteousness, to earn his way to God. Chapter 2, verse 19 says he died to the law. Basically, Paul is saying that to become like him, they need to stop using the law to establish how great they are and how much they have achieved spiritually and rely on Christ instead. So for the rest of this paragraph, he bases that appeal. Stop relying on things that won't get you anywhere and rely on Christ. He bases that appeal on how they used to treat him and how he treated them. So in verse 13, it's as if Paul begins a flashback. And you can hear Paul's pleading voice. He asks them, do you remember the good times? Do you remember when we first met? You know, here I was. I wasn't even supposed to meet you. The only way I got to know you was because I was really sick and suffering. I looked like a mess. And here I am, I'm coming to Galatia, and I'm supposed to be this guy who's carrying this life-altering, earth-shattering gospel. The gospel that's supposed to save you. Jesus who's done something that we can't do. Bear the full weight of our sin and give us his perfect life. I'm the guy who carried that message. Here I am, looking ugly and suffering and in pain. I have things that people would say are because people are cursed by demons. That's how bad I was. And, and you didn't care. You didn't care. You heard this news, and that was what was most important. 
you treated for me. Not that, not that you accepted this news. You treated it me like I was Jesus himself. You cared for me despite this affliction. You hear Paul's pleading tone in this. How they received the gospel in the first place. And you hear Paul again. So friends, notice, I'm not bitter about this suffering. Do you see what this suffering, how God used it? If it wasn't for my ailment, I would never have met you, and you would not be saved. You would not know God. So God used this suffering. And friends, it's not that I can handle this suffering on my own. It's not that I don't pray for it to go away. I have prayed for the Lord uh, to take it away. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul serves the God who uses suffering, who is able to transform suffering. And maybe he uses suffering so that you can relate to people you couldn't relate to before. Maybe he uses suffering like he did with Paul to take you to places that you would not go on your own. Or maybe he just uses suffering to get you closer to him, to make you more dependent on him. So friends, today if you are struggling to believe that God can use suffering and turn it for good, Remember the ultimate display of suffering. The ultimate suffering that ever happened. It's the sinless Son of God dying on the cross. Friends, God used that for the ultimate good, and it did not have the last answer. It did not have the last word. No, Jesus rose from the dead. So you can hear it in Paul's voice. Paul asked the Galatians, do you remember the first time we met? Do you remember the good times? What's changed? Now you hate me? Now you hate me because I'm telling you true things? I don't want to make you upset. But look at what you used to do. Look at how you used to receive me. And it's not just how you used to receive me. It's not just how you used to act. Friends, who are you falling for? See who are you are falling for. These people treat you like dirt. They don't really care about you. These so-called teachers, these agitators, look at what they're doing. Look at their methods. They just want to tell you what you want to hear. They're flattering They'll tell you anything so that they can get you to follow them. They need followers. They need approval. They are emotionally needy people. They care just about advancing themselves. The gospel's freed us from that. The gospel's freed us from needing approval from men because we have approval from God that's settled. Friends, do you see who you're falling for? You can hear Paul saying that. You see who, who you're falling for, their methods and their motives. And do you remember my methods? I'm not telling you just what you want to hear. I'm telling you the truth. I don't want to make you upset, but you need to hear this. 
And it hurts me that it makes you upset. I don't want to make you angry. But I love you enough to tell you the truth. These are my methods. And my goal is not to get a greater following. It's not like them. The heck with Paul. I'm the chief of sinners. My goal is for you to know Christ like I know him. I know how great Jesus is. And right now you're going away from him. There's nothing special about me. It's about the Lord. It's about Christ being formed in you. It's as if Paul is saying this whole time, guys, Jesus has actually done this. He's actually accomplished this. Let's live like it and not go back to anything else. You can hear him saying, you used to receive this. You, you received Christ despite my unpleasant appearance. Continue to lean on Christ even though my tone is harsh, even though my tone is unpleasant. So Paul's concerns for their good, and their good looks like knowing Christ. So here, that should be our priority, relying on Christ alone. What you hear up here, the thing that should matter the most is the truth of the gospel, Christ. What we see out there, what should matter most is not how many people are here, but how much Christ is formed in the people who are here. So we rely on Christ and Christ alone. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray. Father, we are so foolish at times. So foolish to think that our meager works can earn ourselves a place with you. Uh, it's not in us. It's only in you. It's only in what you've done for us. You've planned our redemption when we did not love you. You accomplished our redemption when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. You made us alive together in Christ by your spirit when we rejected you. It's not in us. So God, keep us relying on Christ. Don't let us think that we somehow advance beyond the gospel. No, we live in it every day. Christ is our life. Would you make it so, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.